Well, there's really no other way to describe it. We come now in Matthew to a heavy text. It's just a heavy text. We've been following the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're very close now. The final hours of Jesus' earthly ministry. He has come to give his life as a ransom for sinners. And so we're going to focus today in Matthew chapter 26, Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. For those of you who are visual learners, we're preaching about that window right there. (laughs) There's Jesus praying. You see his three disciples asleep in a faithful city in the backdrop. It is a heavy text, but it is also a word this morning. It is a word specifically for anyone suffering. For anyone facing a heavy load. For anyone who has cried out this question. When you're going through suffering, what you want to know is, does anyone know how I feel? Can anybody understand what I'm going through? This is God's word to you. And it will answer once and for all that question. Does anyone know what it feels like? Let's uh, start actually in verse 26 and see what leads up to the garden. Supper is now finished. Let's look at this Passover. Start in verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. 
Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, you know the scene. Supper is now over. Jesus has finished his instruction to the apostles. He's urged them to abide in him as branches abide in a vine. He's warned them of the opposition of the world, and yet he told them to bear faithful witness nonetheless, remembering that the spirit of truth would be their chief witness. He's prayed. He's prayed for himself, that he would glorify his Father in the coming ordeal. He's prayed for the disciples, that they would be kept in truth and holiness and mission and unity. And lastly, he's prayed for all the subsequent generations of disciples who would believe because of the apostolic message. That's us. They've sung a hymn. They've left the upper room. They've walked through the streets of the city in the stillness of the night in the soft light of the Passover moon. They've crossed the Kidron Valley, started to climb the Mount of Olives, and turned into this olive orchard. It must have been a favorite prayer retreat for Jesus. It's named Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane literally means oil press, a name that is certainly laden with symbolism. And what happens here in the garden is one of the high holy places in Scripture, Christ's agony in the garden. Now, so far, Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, I mean, one of the things you note is whatever happens, Jesus is a rock, isn't he? I mean, the disciples can, wow, everything that happens, the disciples are amazed at the steadfastness of Jesus. And here, Jesus breaks down. He's sorrowful. Uh, Perhaps it is a mark of good fortune. Maybe you're like me. Uh, I was old enough to actually remember the first time I saw one of my parents break down emotionally. If you're like me and you had a relatively stable home life, you know, a good childhood that didn't have any, you know, a lot lot of trauma to speak of, uh, then, you you know, your parents are like, well, your parents are rock. They're, They're rocks of stability in your universe. If you're like me, a little child looks at his stable family and mom and dad and thinks, well, nothing can shake them. They're they're just rocks. And so uh, uh, when when you're a child and and you see, for example, my dad, when when, uh, uh, his grandfather went through some health stuff and died, and and to see dad weeping and breaking down, I thought, well, it's very unnerving for a child to see a parent cry, to see, I mean, this is my rock. How could they? It's something you don't forget. All through the gospel, Jesus is completely composed. He's faced death threats, opposition, opposition from religious leaders, opposition from his own family, and he's been just a rock. And the disciples here watching in the garden would have seen this rock break down. Had they been watching, they were asleep. Uh, you know, I think, how did the church's first prayer meeting go? <laughs> Not well. They're sleeping just when Jesus needs his friends to stay with him. Go back and look carefully at these verses. Verse 36, Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane. Sit here while I go over there and pray. There are little, you know, olive trees around, and he's, he's saying, I'm going to go pray. You pray by this tree. I'm going to go over here. And he takes with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee were James and John. He says, come, come with me. And then the Bible describes his emotional state. I keep saying breakdown. Look, sorrowful. You see that in verse 37? Sorrowful and troubled. My soul, Jesus even admit, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So I just need you to stay awake with me. Just be with me. Now, sorrowful and troubled don't probably adequately convey in modern English, did you use the word sorrowful this week, you know? Um, The word troubled is defined by B.B. Warfield as loathing mixed with despondency. Warfield 
points out, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Overwhelmed, as in it, it, it's too much. It, this is a mental pain, a distress. The overwhelmed part means it hems him in on every side, and so he feels like there's no escape. Now, to anyone who's been in mental distress or mental pain, that's one of the questions is, is this ever going to end? I feel trapped. I don't feel like I can get out of that. Dread, alarm, anguish. Now, Luke in his gospel, naturally Luke, the physician, would add something like this. He adds his physical condition. At one point, Jesus sweat so profusely, a sign of shock, so profusely he sweat great drops of blood. Of course, Jesus was without sin, but that does not mean he was without suffering. Tim Mackey says plainly what a, mod- a lot of modern folks can readily understand. Plain and simple, Tim Mackey said Jesus had a panic attack. That all he wanted was for his friends to just be there with him, to stay awake and hear a breakdown. Now, the reason some people balk when they hear things like Jesus broke down or Jesus had a panic attack or Jesus needed his friends to be there, the reason we are shocked to talk that way is because we forget the full humanity of Jesus. It's difficult for us to imagine Jesus breaking down because we've seen his power and his authority. But maybe we have a problem with our theology when we undervalue his true and full humanity. Jesus' divinity chose to share humanity completely. He was all God and all man. In Gethsemane, there's no diluting his humanness. And we thank God for that because Jesus' humanness is essential to our salvation. One of the early church fathers put it this way, the unassumed is the unredeemed. Meaning if he did not take on, if he was not truly and fully human in mind, body, emotions, that means vulnerable to all sorts of attacks, all sorts of suffering, including a panic attack. The argument is that if Jesus was not fully human in mind and body, then he could not truly stand in our place as our substitute for sin and representative before the Father. So, To say that Jesus was all God, but not truly human. Oh, you know, surely he didn't suffer in this way. Surely this was just, he just seemed to be suffering. He didn't actually suffer. No. To say that he was not truly human is in fact to embrace the spirit of Antichrist. That's what 1 John says in 1 John 4. John says, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. That's the spirit of Antichrist. So Jesus is breaking down. And we're shown his prayer. He prays this three times. Verse 39, going a little further, farther, he fell on his face and prayed, staggering. Have you ever seen someone so overwhelmed with sorrow, they just collapse? What's going on here? Well, to understand this text and to give us an outline, I'm using Tim Keller's outline of this passage. I want to examine three things. The magnitude of Christ's agony, what Keller calls the immediacy of Christ's agony, And for us, the model and power of Christ's agony. So the magnitude of his agony, the immediacy, and for us, he is both model and power for our own suffering. First, the magnitude of Christ's agony. When Christ says, I'm overwhelmed to the point of death, basically that means he's saying, I feel like I'm going to die right here. And, and, and look at verse 39. He just, he straight up prays, Father, I, I don't want to do this. Look at verse 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, 
he, he's, he's said all along in his ministry, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. And yet he comes to this point and, 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 and he says, is there any other way, God? Is there any other way? If there's any other way, I, 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 let this cup pass from me. I, 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 don't, I don't want to do this. He prays it a second time and then a third time. So the question is, what does he mean? What is this cup? Was, it, was Jesus saying, I don't want to go through the physical suffering? No. The torture, was the cup the torture and scourge of the cross? No. Was it the mental anguish and betrayal and denial by his friends being deserted? No. Maybe was it the mockery of his enemies and the slander? No. As grievous as all these things are when put together, his physical and moral courage throughout his public ministry has been fearless. Suddenly, you're going to tell me that he doesn't want to face pain and insult? No. And he's not surprised by his own death. John 12 says, this is what I've come for. I've come to die. All throughout Matthew, he said, I'm going to die. So why don't we see Jesus here as a, as a model of, you know, I'm ready, Lord. Anything you got. No, instead, he says, my father, if it's, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, have you considered uh, the history of Christian martyrs and how many of the stories of our martyrs, how bravely they faced their death? I'll just give you a few. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch in the early church, beginning of the second century in Syria. He was on his way to Rome. The church was going to try to get him released, and he begged the church not to release him from suffering and death because he wouldn't want to be deprived of the honor of being martyred. He wrote, let the fire and the cross and the company of wild beasts, let the breaking of bones and tearing of limbs and grinding of the whole body, let all the malice of the devil come upon me. Be it so, if only I may gain Christ Jesus. That seems very different than, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Or take Polycarp. At 86 years old, he could have escaped death by fleeing or denying Christ. Instead, he was burned at the stake. And just before the fire was lit, he prayed, O Father, I bless thee that thou hast counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of martyrs. Brave. How about in England in 1555? Two men burned for their faith, burned at the stake. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. As the flames were coming up, Hugh Latimer has these famous words you've probably heard as he calls out to his friend, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust never shall be put out. Boldly, bravely. Now, were these Christian martyrs braver than Jesus? No, that can't be. Or consider an example from the pagan world, Socrates, in his prison cell of Athens, according to Plato's account, he took the cup of hemlock, quote, without trembling or changing color or expression. He raised the cup to his lips, cheerfully quiet, and quietly drained it. When his friends burst into tears, he rebuked them for their absurd behavior and urged them to keep quiet and be brave. He died without fear or sorrow or protest. So the question remains, was Socrates braver to face his cup than Jesus? John Stott writes a little sentence that made me put his book down when I read it. He asks, was Socrates braver than Jesus? Or were their cups filled with different poisons? There it is. The magnitude of Christ's agony. Why was it that Jesus seems nowhere near as poised and peaceful in the face of death as many of his followers? The answer is none of his followers ever had to face a death like this. 
In fact, no human ever faced a death like this. What was unique about this death? The cup. In ancient times, cup could just mean suffering or horrible ordeal, but in the Old Testament, over and over again, when prophets talked about the cup, they talked about the cup of wrath poured out, God's judicial punishment on wickedness. For example, if you're a note taker, just jot down a couple references. Ezekiel 23. This afternoon, you may glance at Ezekiel 23. The prophet tells the people they've sinned against God, you shall drink the cup of ruin and desolation. Jot down Isaiah 54. You will drink the cup of his fury and you will stagger. Here Jesus is staggering in the garden. Jot down Job 21. A wicked person was said to drink of the wrath of the Almighty. And one more. Jot down Psalm 75. Ezekiel 23. Isaiah 54. Job 21. Psalm 75. Psalm 75 is a meditation on the universal judgment of God. You know, in the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Perhaps you remember in the book of Revelation, the wicked will drink of the wine of God's fury poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. So the Old Testament imagery would have been well known to Jesus. He recognized the cup being offered as containing the wine of God's wrath given to the wicked, causing a complete disorientation of body and mind to become so identified with sinners as to bear judgment for sin. His sinless soul recoiled at the thought of contact with sin and experienced something he had never experienced from all eternity past. For the first time, he would experience the alienation from his father, which judgment on sin would cause. No one has ever been asked to drink that cup. That's what Jesus is doing. He's staggering. The judicial wrath of God on human evil is beginning to come down on him now. He's beginning to experience what he, now in the garden, what he will experience fully on the cross. Abandonment, rejection, God withdrawing his presence. And that's why he just asked his disciples, just sit here while I go over there and pray. Just, just be with me. Stay awake. And that's the horror. That's why he says, is there any other way? That's why he's in more agony than any of his followers. God withdrawing, the thought of God withdrawing from him. And when he experienced that being pulled away from, he goes into absolute agony. He's beginning to taste the wrath of God. All those brave martyrs, think about it, all those brave martyrs faced their death because they were certain of one thing, the nearness of God in Christ. Jesus was about to go and pay for that nearness with his own separation from God. And he was beginning to taste it. Why do I keep saying beginning to taste it? I think in the garden, he was getting, he was almost like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to look into that fiery furnace and see all that wrath in there. Jesus, in a way, was, God was allowing Jesus to see the agony. And that leads to the immediacy. So that, that's the magnitude of his agony. But what about the immediacy of his ag- agony? Many commentators have explained what I just explained. The magnitude of Christ's agony on almost any commentary, or even if you have a study Bible, they will point out that Jesus was not uh, less brave than any of his followers. He was just asked to drink a very different cup than any of his followers. And, And knowing he was going to bear God's wrath for sin, that's he saying, if there's any other way, let that pass. Many people pointed that out. But uh, the immediacy... Uh, and here, I, uh, Tim Keller uh, uh, steered me to this sermon. It's a Jonathan Edwards sermon. Edwards is the one who points out the immediacy of Christ's agony. If you want to download and read for free Jonathan Edwards' sermon, it's in the public domain. It's, called, it's just called Christ's Agony. 
Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Christ Agony. You could Google that this afternoon. And Edwards basically asked this question, why, I never thought about it, but why is it that Jesus Christ experiences, why does he get a little foretaste? Why does he get to experience some of Calvary's cross wrath? Why does he get to experience some of it now in the garden? Why now? And the answer Edwards gives is this. Because the disciples are asleep. Because the Roman soldiers aren't here yet. Because Jesus knows his betrayer Judas is coming, but watch this, but Judas is not here yet. He gets to experience what he's going to experience on the cross. He gets to experience that because he's completely alone. He's in the dark. What's Edward's point? His point is, he's free to leave. Jesus could slip away. You see, once you're on the cross and the full wrath of God comes down, there's nothing you can do. You may cry out, let this cup pass, but it's too late. It's already happening. You're drinking the cup. But because God lets him experience this agony here in the garden, it's not too late yet. If Jesus just wanted to walk away from the Father's will, he could have. The disciples are asleep. The Roman guards aren't there yet. Judas hasn't betrayed. It's literally not too late. He's free to leave. He could just slip away. Don't you see? This is God's way of making sure that what Jesus Christ does is absolutely voluntary. It's absolutely his own action. It's an act of love, not an act of compulsion. You know how he says in John chapter 15, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Well, this is finally happening. This is what Edward says in his sermon on this. Think how vivid that is. Here are Edward's own words. God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners, knowing full what it was. If Christ had not fully known before he took it and drank it, it would not have properly been his own act as a man. But when he took that cup, knowing what he did, so was his love to us infinitely the more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely the more perfect. Does that make sense? He knew ahead of time exactly what he was getting into. That's the sorrow. That's the drops of blood. That's the immediacy. And that is the infinite nature of his love. That he knew all that it would entail and said, Not my will, but thine be done. And went anyway. Boy, what could he have said in that moment? Jonathan Edwards imagines what he might have said. He might have said, when, when the father sets down the cup and says, here it is, smell it, look at the furnace you're about to be thrown into. If, if, if you go into that, they'll be saved. But it's the only way for them to be saved is for you to go through this, what you're feeling right now. Are you ready to do it? Edwards says, listen to this quote, did Jesus say this? He could have said, why should I, who am so great and glorious a person, go plunge myself into such dreadful, amazing torments for people who can never requite me for it? Yes, why should I be crushed under the weight of divine wrath for those who will not even stay awake with me during my greatest need? He could have said that. Why should I go do this when these guys can't even stay awake with me? He would have had every right to say that, and we would have been lost. Instead, 
He's saying, I will plunge myself into these amazing torments. I'll let this nuclear warhead of hell burst on me and destroy me for them. And then when he goes, I mean, he's having this agony of what he's about to do for these disciples. Look at the love of Jesus. And when he reprimands the disciples, what does he say? Ah, he meant well. Isn't that so tender? What is it? The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Now you look at Peter. What a gracious thing to say. Peter could have said, actually, the spirit's not really willing either, right? Falling asleep, we know he's about to det- not only deny him, he's just made this big boast about how he's never going to deny and then denies. And Jesus, oh, the mercy of Jesus to see the best, to say, well, spirit willing, flesh is weak. I'm, I'm, I'll pray for you. So instead of saying, look, I, I don't need to do this. I'm too great a person. Uh, these people will never be able to pay me back. Instead, verse 39, he prays, not as I will, but as you will. Does this sound familiar? Does this prayer sound familiar? Thy will be done. I think this is the only part of the Lord's Prayer we actually get to see Jesus activate and pray himself. I mean, he says, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. It's kind of like lead us not into temptation. But otherwise, this is the only part. By my account, this is the only place in scriptures where you actually get to see Jesus pray himself the words he taught his disciples to pray. Thy will be done. And it's the second time. And notice the second time he prays it. Notice there's sort of a, it's different. He's processed it a little more, and now there seems to be added resolve. Look at verse 42. Again, for the second time. First it was, is there any other way? If there's any other way, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. His prayer the first time is, let this cup pass from me. Notice the second time. Notice the increase in resolve. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. But notice this time, my father, okay, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now look at the emphasis, thy will be done above all else. Oh, the love of Jesus. Do you see the immediacy of his agony? The point is simple. If you, if you say, well, I, I didn't understand all that highfalutin, all that quotes from Jonathan Edwards and all that stuff, just understand this. He could have walked away and we would have been lost. Because he stayed, we can be saved. And we're saved by that decision in the garden of agony. Well, let's bring this matter to a close. The magnitude of Christ's agony, nobody ever had to drink a cup like this. The immediacy of Christ's agony, I believe God let him feel that wrath now so that he could, with eyes wide open, with full knowledge of what he was getting into, voluntarily lay down his life for sinners. And finally, how do we apply this to us? What does this have to do with us? I told you at the beginning of this message, for anyone going through suffering or sorrow, this would be a piece of driftwood to someone floating in the ocean. This would be a life preserver. This scripture will answer the question, does anyone know how I feel? Jesus Christ is both the model and the power for our own suffering. First, he's a model. He's a model of two things. Isn't he a model of integrity? What do I mean by that? A model of integrity obedience. He's a model of integrity because Jesus Christ is in the dark and no one is seeing him, only God. People aren't seeing him. And think about it. There's no real payoff for him to obey. (laughs) For him, nothing good is going to come out of obedience. And he's saying, "I'm, I'm, I'm, I'm sorrowful. And he obeys anyway. What does this mean? Jesus Christ is the same in the dark as he is in the light. Not many folks can say that. 
Let me back up. None of us can say that. We are different in the dark when nobody sees, when nobody's around, and when, let's be honest, there's nothing really in it for us. Our obedience is tested. I'll put it this way. Our obedience is different than it is in the light when everyone can see. And we're preaching sermons in front of everyone. Hmm? See? We're different in the dark than in the light. We're different when we're around this group of people than we are when we're around this group of people. Oh, but the Lord Jesus, doesn't he have perfect integrity? Who he is when nobody's watching, only his Father, is exactly who he is when everybody's watching. He is a model of integrity and obedience, but he's also a model for trust. I told you he's a model for two things and the power for two things. He's a model for integrity. He's also a model of what it means to trust. This is Jesus Christ trusting God. He's realistic. Now watch this. This is very important for anyone suffering. He cries out, I don't want to do this. Let this cup pass. If you read the Psalms, the Psalms is mostly people yelling at God. That's mostly what the Psalms are. Psalms are crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, I know that your will will be done and you'll be enthroned on high. I know that you're the Holy One of Israel. It is grieve and believe. It is emotionally healthy for a Christian going through sorrow to do both of those things. Not either or. Don't get it twisted. If you're going through sorrow or you're going through grief and you think, why can I not get over this? I'm grieving so much. I'm, I'm angry at God. I want to I yell at the, at, the, at the Lord and say, I don't want this. Can I tell you? That's healthy. And for somebody to come up to you and say, well, I don't understand. You believe the promises of Scripture. What's the problem? Oh. However, if all you do is grieve, if all you do is say, you know, I'm, I'm angry at God and you leave it there, then you're failing the other part of trust, grieve, and believe. It's not either or, it's both and. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, thy will be done. You see? How do you have that kind of trust? Elizabeth Elliot has written a lot on the subject of God's will. She says, I dethrone God in my heart if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. I dethrone God Take God off the throne in my heart if I say, you need to act in ways that match my justice. If I ever say, God, you have no right to do this or that. I've dethroned him in my heart. And here's her famous quote. Perhaps you've heard it. God, God is God. And if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. And if you need that quote, email me, and I'll email you that quote if you can't find it, okay? Because I'll say it again. God is God, and if he's God, he's worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will, and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. And that's what Jesus is doing here in the garden. Thy will be done. I'm going to obey you, Lord, whether I like it or not, no matter the circumstances, no matter the consequences, and I'm going to trust you. Oh, I'm going to scream, let this cup pass from me. I'm going to have sorrow, and I'm going to cry out, but I'm not going to try to repress how I feel. But in the end, I'm saying, God, thy will be done. God is God. How can you learn to trust God like that? How can you get the power? I promised you the power. How can you trust God like that? Here's how. You only trust people all the way down if you, 
if you know that they love you all the way down to the core of who they are. So, no matter what's happening in your life, you can say, thy will be done. After you scream, (laughs) you can say, thy will be done. That's how Christ did it. But he's giving you the power because you look at Jesus in the garden and the power comes from knowing that whatever I go through, I do not have to go through it alone. I am kneeling beside. So when you go through suffering, go to dark Gethsemane and see there the man of sorrows who suffered with us and for us for our salvation. When you see his love, notice the difference between thy will be done and God's will be done. What's the difference in those two comments? Thy will be done, and well, whatever, I guess God's will will be done. One is looking full in the face of God. Thy will be done. God, we are in relationship. I'm not letting go of you. You've not let go of me, so thy will be done is very different than a flippant sort of, oh, well, que sera, sera, whatever, God's will will be done. No, 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 no. This is looking full in the face of your Savior and saying, thy will be done. Musicians are going to come and lead us in a time of response. It could be that you're going through a time of suffering, and you need to be reminded of this passage. Christ's agony was for us and our salvation. He suffered and died alone, cut off from the Father, so that you never would be. I'm going to repeat that. (laughs) In just a moment, I'll repeat that. Uh, the, uh, maybe your mind is uh, like mine. I know Brother Chuck and I think this way. We think in terms of songs. And in the back of my mind as I'm preparing a message, it seems like there's always a song in there floating around. And the song this whole week has been in my head is uh, one, by one of my favorite Christian songwriters. His name's Andrew Peterson. And he wrote a song called The Silence of God. And it's a song about one of the darkest times in his life. And he said the hardest part about his going through that was when people would come up and slap him on the back and say, isn't God wonderful? Isn't God good? Everything's going to turn out all right. And he's like, yes, I know they are. I I know God is good, but it's tough to hear that when you're going through a lot of pain and suffering, you know? And so he found great comfort in uh, thinking about the garden. So he actually, he actually tours this, he's on concert, he's on tour, he's going through this darkness and he tours this, this monastery and it's in Kentucky and there's this statue of, this, of, of Jesus crying out. And you have to look way over there. And there's a statue of the disciples. And they're all asleep. And it, 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 it blessed his heart to know, like, when he asked, does anybody know what I'm talking about? That, that it's like the heavens have brassed over and I'm experiencing the silence of God. It occurred to him, he needs to go back to Gethsemane. And there, see the man of sorrows. <laughs> His song is uh, Silence of God, if you want to listen to it. It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. (laughs) When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart. And when he has to remember what broke him apart. The yoke may be easy, but this burden is not. When the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. And if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to that cross, then what about the time when even followers get lost? He says, because we all get lost sometimes. 
There's a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold. And he's kneeling in the garden, as silent as a stone. All his friends are sleeping, and he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not. And the holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the magnitude of Christ's agony in the garden, for the immediacy of that agony, and for what was purchased for his great suffering for us and our salvation. Thank you, O Lord, that because Jesus Christ suffered and died alone, we never will. Thank you, O Lord, that for anybody in here who is suffering and hurting and filled with sorrow, that today they can go to dark Gethsemane and find there someone who knows exactly what they are going through, someone who is purchasing uh, for them that great comfort with his own agony. Lord, grant that we might meditate on the deep and abiding love of God shown to us in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.